If you would, please join me in prayer. Lord, we pray that as we examine this passage of Scripture that speaks so much about your Son's second coming, that, Lord, you would work in our hearts to make us desire it. Too many times, Lord, we're fearful of that day, but that day is meant to be the day of our full redemption, and it should excite us and we should long for it. So, Lord, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts today, that we would be comforted by your words, and that through them, Lord, we would long for that day when we get to be with you eternally. We love you. We give you all praise. Amen. If you would, please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Over the last two sermons, we've been working through the words of Jesus and what is commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. This was an extended lesson by the Lord to his disciples exclusively one evening during the week that preceded his death and resurrection. And the reason for the lesson was due to an event that had happened earlier that day. We read of it here in the first three verses of chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the building of the temple. Now both Mark and Luke reveal that the disciples were marveling at the construction of the temple at this point. Verse 2, but he, meaning Jesus, answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. When Jesus revealed to them that the temple was going to be toppled, that blew the disciples' minds. That would be an extraordinary event that must herald Jesus the Messiah ascending to the throne in Jerusalem and the judgment of the nations must begin. It was natural for them to want the answers to these three questions. When will these things happen, specifically the destruction of the temple? What will be the sign of his ascension? And coupled with that, when will be the end of the age? And we pointed out within their minds that the disciples assumed that this would happen all at once. Now, Jesus answers these questions now from this point to the end of chapter 25. Now, when we began this section in Matthew, I warned you to be careful about reading a particular view of the end times into this passage. It can be easy to be confused and misinterpret what Jesus is teaching here. We need to allow the text to speak for itself before we allow someone else to tell us its meaning. It's extremely helpful to remind ourselves that, that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has a purpose for why he has included and arranged the material as he has. It'd be wise for us to remember that Matthew is writing in the period between Jesus' resurrection and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And we can see how two of his purposes have unfolded throughout the book. First, with the coming of Jesus the Messiah, everything is about to change. Something of major significance has occurred. The way that sinful humanity is reconciled to a holy God has been drastically changed. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the requirements of the law and the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. By his sacrificial death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, he is now the exclusive way to be made right with God. Temple sacrifices will no longer have a reason to exist. Everything required has been fulfilled in Jesus, the Son of God, and one's faith must be in that alone. 
This will mean that Judaism, as his readers understood it, would be completely altered, especially with the destruction of the temple. Matthew's whole purpose in his gospel account is to point the readers towards the uniqueness of Jesus. And second, post-resurrection, there is a need for Christians to endure and complete the task given to them by the Savior. Despite the fact that they will be hated by their fellow Jews and be opposed by the world at large, they are to carry the gospel to the nations. Remember, the last words that Matthew records is the instruction from Jesus to his followers to go into all the world and make disciples. This was knowing that they would receive intense opposition as they do so. But the single event of the resurrection of our Lord should bolster them to note that not even death itself can stop the Lord's mission to grow his kingdom. Now, taking those two purposes in mind as our backdrop here, we can have clarity as to Jesus' purpose for the Olivet Discourse. So far, we've learned from verses 4 through 14 that until the end of the age, his disciples will experience the the temptations and hardships of living in this sin-saturated world. Jesus calls this the birth pains, like contractions that lead to the birth of new life. This painful environment is only evidence that something better is coming. But he also adds that his disciples will experience intense persecution. This will happen as the gospel is being proclaimed to what Matthew terms the whole world as a testimony to the nations. Then the end will come. Note that in verse 9, he calls this period tribulation. That's the general condition of Christians till the end of the age. In verses 15 through 28, he describes the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Luke chapter 21 provides a little bit more clarity to this, that this is precisely what Jesus is describing. Last week, I read to you from the Jewish historian Josephus, his account of the Roman siege of Jerusalem and its eventual fall, the destruction of the temple, and how the survivors were sold into slavery. In that account, Josephus described how the Jewish leaders, in order to instill hope, promoted false prophets that promised delivery from God if the people would only ascend to the temple, the very building that Jesus just said would be destroyed. But here in verses 25 through 27, Jesus reveals you don't need to count on false rumors or fake news for when he actually does return because everyone will see it. In fact, his return will not occur until after the tribulation of those days. And when he does come, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn because he comes in judgment. After the illustration of the fig tree, this brings us back to Jesus describing his second advent. And basically, there are two remaining points of the sermon. First, no one will know when it will happen. Therefore, it's going to be completely unexpected. And second, Christians need to live in expectation of it and be prepared for it. And that's going to make up our outline this morning. The unexpected hour of the Lord's coming and how we are to live in expectation of it. Now, we're only going to have time to focus on the first of these and begin our discussion on the second. I had hoped to get all the way to the end of chapter 25, but I could not do that to you this morning, folks. I had to give you a breather before we go then. But both of these points that we're talking about is the part of the discourse that is extremely relevant for us today. No one knows the hour and how we should live in expectation of the coming. 
When we get into verse 36, we need to see that Jesus is distinguishing between those days mentioned in verse 29 and that day in this verse. Those days refers to the time of tribulation. As I mentioned last week, there are some that believe that this is a reference to to some future uh, tribulation. I made the case that this refers to the entire time period between the resurrection and the second advent. This is the era that Luke describes in chapter 21 of his gospel as the time of the Gentiles being fulfilled as the gospel extends beyond the borders of national Israel. Currently, we are living in those days. Now, I'm not going to rehash that today, but if you missed it, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message. Therefore, when Jesus refers to that day, he is referring to his second coming back in verses 30 through 32. This will be an event that will be accompanied by cosmic disorder, and everyone alive will witness it. Jesus will gather his elect to him. That is the positive side of his coming. But something else occurs on that day, something that makes the tribes of the earth mourn, and that is the final judgment. That is the day he now begins to describe. And this is what Jesus wants his disciples to know about that day. First, no one will know when it occurs. No one except the Father. No mere man, no angel in heaven, not even Jesus knew when he would return. No one knows. So when some yahoo tries to tell you they figured out the day when Jesus will return, don't believe them. And I dare say we should not speculate on the matter either. I hear all the times, well, the signs are, you know, they're being fulfilled. The day is about to occur. Well, there is a level of truth to that. I I would prefer that we leave out any speculative evidence that the end is near other than Jesus said that he could come at any time. We're definitely closer to his return today than we were yesterday. And we should live as though it could happen at any moment. But may I remind you that the earlier Christians surely must have felt, well, the end is here when the Roman Empire collapsed in the year 476. And this was after the empire had become Christian under Constantine. Just because things are bad in America doesn't necessarily uh, mean that we should presume that this is a sign of his coming. In Acts chapter 1, verse 7, we also read, just before he ascended to heaven, Jesus affirmed once again that he was not aware of the exact time of his return. Naturally, the question arises, does this ignorance of Jesus about the timing of the day somehow make him less divine? Certainly not. We know that God is three persons, and each person is fully God, and that there is only one God. In what theologians call the economy of the Trinity, the only distinctions between the members of the Trinity are in the way that each person of the Trinity relates to one another and to creation. They are perfectly one, yet each has a role, so to speak, in the salvation of the elect. According to Ephesians chapter 1, which is the easiest summation of this, God the Father initiated the plan of salvation that we should be forgiven, redeemed, and adopted in the Son. The Son did that work on our behalf, and the Spirit seals us to Christ through regeneration according to the work of the Son. So in order for Jesus to fulfill his role in this, he had to empty himself in some measure as he became the divine man living by faith just as we do, just as Philippians 2 describes. 
He had to offer perfect obedience to the Father and be dependent upon him through his human will without sin. That is the only way that he could become the perfect sacrifice to be offered on our behalf at the cross so that his perfect righteousness could cover us. And that perfect dependence upon the Father extends even to divine knowledge, trusting in the Father's wisdom of executing the plan of salvation from birth, his obedience in life, redemption, resurrection, and the coming judgment. Therefore, Jesus' ignorance on this matter is an act of love toward his Father in complete trust that he will execute his plan of salvation perfectly. Now, if Jesus was unwilling to speculate as to the timing of his coming, why should we? And yet, speculating on the end times is the subject of most Christian bestsellers. What Jesus does affirm is that he could come at any moment. It will be a complete surprise to everyone on the earth. And it will be accompanied by judgment. This is why the tribes of the earth mourn. Jesus references here the flood as an example of the coming judgment. If you remember the story back from Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9, the sinfulness of man became so great that God decided to wipe mankind off the face of the earth. And he did so through a flood. The only ones who were saved were Noah and his family by building the ark. The rest of humanity went about its daily business, not suspecting that a worldwide catastrophe was coming. And here Jesus describes the culture of that time. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying without any concern for the future, and then judgment came and swept them all away. So it will be when Jesus comes again. Now, considering that Lord willing, we'll be studying Genesis as our next book, it befits us to notice here that Jesus believed in a historical Noah and in the historicity of the flood. Neither of those things was of any doubt in his mind. Now, there are some that look at verses 40 and 41 and think that this refers to a secret rapture. But context suggests to be taken away is a bad thing and not a good thing. They are taken away just as evil humanity was swept away by the flood. Now, I want to ask you to keep a bookmark here and flip back to chapter 13. This is on page 819 of your pew Bible. Now, we've seen there's connections here between this chapter and this discourse. And we're going to flip back and forth between chapter 13 and chapter 24, recognizing that this is the same author writing with the same purpose. So keep a bookmark in both places. Now, if you remember, in this chapter, Jesus told parables to the general crowds, and then behind closed doors, he explained the meaning exclusively to his disciples. There he told two parables concerning the judgment, one on the wheat and the tares, and another on the fishnet. For the sake of time, we're only going to look at their explanations here. But Matthew chapter 13, verse 37, he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Now, note Matthew's technical term exclusive to his gospel, his term the end of the age, which features prominently in the Olivet Discourse. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. 
And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now skip just a few verses ahead as he explains the parable of the net. Again, Matthew uses his technical term here, end of the age or close of the age, same same Greek words. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and then throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I would ask you, as we turn back to Matthew chapter 24, again, keep a bookmark here, chapter 13, is it a good thing to be taken away? I think not. This is a sorting process that Jesus will refer to at the end of chapter 25 with the sheep and the goats. So because we don't know when Jesus will return, bringing his judgment, We must be, as he instructs in verse 42, stay awake. We don't know when he will return, but it'll be like a thief in the night. Now, just so we understand, Jesus is not a thief. As the creator, he owns everything. The illustration refers to the suddenness and the surprise. No one is expecting when a thief will strike. Therefore, we need to remain vigilant. And this staying awake is not just a reference to sleep, but it's an instruction for staying alert and living within the gospel. Paul understood it that way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, you're welcome to turn there as I read this to you. It's on page 987. But listen to how remarkably similar Paul's description is of that day to the Lord Jesus' account. It's almost like Matthew and Paul were under the same inspiration or something. They were. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Now listen to this part. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet for the hope of salvation. For God did not destine us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Paul wants the Christians in Thessalonica to be sober, to be ready. Don't give yourself into sensuality, but knowing that the Lord is coming, throw yourself all the more into living by the gospel and building up your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is what pleases God. And Jesus will commend it as well. Now, note that Jesus' words anticipate a time of perseverance in service prior to, to his return. Verse 45 of Matthew 24. 
Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him or an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and throw him in with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here was a humorous bumper sticker going around about 15 years ago. It stated, Jesus is coming, look busy. As though Jesus was some sort of classroom monitor that had left the room. You know, everybody, classroom monitor leaves, everybody does their things, throwing the spitballs and everything, and then first sight of them appears, everybody straightens up and looks busy. It's funny. We probably all did something similar when we were young. In fact, some of you husbands might have done it this past weekend when your wives brought you a chore list and you said, oh, honey, sorry, I, I got to rearrange the sock drawer today. But the implication in this passage is much greater. Jesus knows all and he sees all. There is nothing hidden that will not be made known. He knows every deed, even those we are not aware that we did. That's clear in Matthew 25, verse 39. I love that when I say that and your heads bow down and you look at the word and make sure it's coming from the word. But what Jesus describes during this tribulation period as we await his return is a test of our character. What happens to us as we are immersed in this world and in our particular situation, either good or bad? To one group that identifies as Christian, it will reveal faithfulness and others it will reveal a self-absorption rather than living for Christ. Now, I'm going to ask you to flip back to Matthew chapter 13. There Jesus tells another parable concerning the type of person that the gospel message will come to. Again, for the sake of time, I'm going to go directly to the explanation of the parable. Verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That, this is what was sown along the path. Now, we can all agree on that one. This is the person who shows no indication that they identify as a Christian. But look at the next two. Verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is a person that claims to be a Christian, and then when hardships come, they fall away. And then we have the next test, verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is the so-called believer that loves the world more than they love the gospel. And of course, you have the good soil. Verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and another thirty. 
According to Jesus, folks, there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. You are either saved and you endure to the end, or you do not. When we place this parable alongside Matthew chapter 24, it appears that Jesus describes this period between his resurrection and advent as being a time of winnowing. The implications are extreme. The faithful are put over all of the master's possessions. We're going to see that emphasized in Matthew chapter 25, verse 21, and also in verse 23. And it's Paul's understanding of our final state when he writes in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And he also wrote Ephesians 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But to the one who is playing one who's pretending and presuming upon God's good graces, we have Matthew 24, verse 51, where we're told he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the same state that was described what we read back in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 42 and verse 50, and it's going to be repeated again in Matthew chapter 25, verse 30. We're told in chapter 25, verse 46, that this punishment is eternal. Do you feel the weight of that? So we should stop and evaluate a bit here. Lord willing, in two weeks' time, we're going to see how Jesus describes this state of waiting. Now, if you feel like you're on a cliffhanger, you don't have to wait on me. Feel free to read on ahead. But this is a good place to ask ourselves three important questions. And here, I'm specifically going to address those who profess to be Christians. If you do not claim to be a Christian, I I would ask that you observe and see whether or not we take seriously the claims of Christ and that we're willing to measure ourselves by his teaching. This in no way implies that we consider ourselves to be perfect. In fact, to the contrary, we recognize our sin and our weakness, and our desire is to repent and conform ourselves to Christ. We're striving to live as Jesus taught. So please observe us and see if that's not our desire. We judge ourselves in light of Christ way before we ever want to give the impression we judge anybody else. Christians, this is for you. Question number one. Do you believe in the sudden appearance of Christ? Do you believe in the sudden appearance of Christ? Or have you lulled yourself into thinking that this is some far-off event that most likely will not occur in my lifetime? Peter witnessed the same attitude in the brothers and sisters of his day. He wrote to them in 2 Peter chapter 3, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And listen to his instructions here. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? 
waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's our hope. Our Lord is coming. We shouldn't look busy, but we should be busy. This should be our desire, whether or not he returns in our lifetime or not. We should make the most of the day while there is light. We're not promised tomorrow. I say this not only in expectation of his coming, but in my family's household, just within the last three weeks, we've lost friends unexpectedly means that you never would have thought of would have taken we're not promised tomorrow this is why you need to take care of things today second what is the tribulation doing to you are you staying faithful or are you conforming to the world And there's two ways I want to emphasize here. Do you find yourself giving yourself over to false liberal doctrines in order to avoid persecution? That seems to be a common practice among professing Christians today. And equally bad on the other side is acting like the world by putting up a wall of hate against those who persecute you. You want nothing to do with those sinners even though you're one yourself. Does this not go against what we learned in the Sermon on the Mount to love our enemies? To feel blessed when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake? Or the end of Matthew, to take the gospel to the world? How can we do that if we resent the very people we are called to love? Third question. What is the waiting doing to you? Is it making you jaded? Are you giving yourself over into dissipation? If you're not familiar with that word, the New Testament describes this as giving yourself over to the pleasures of the world in order to escape your situation. Sometimes we give ourselves over to too much drink. Maybe you're giving yourself over to your video games or your streaming services or sports. I get this. It's my struggle, too. Sometimes you just want to hide, right, and you want to pull the covers up over your head. But don't give up. Remember who is coming. Our Lord will arrive. His word is as true as his salvation. We are told on that great day, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. 
And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worship its image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Folks, Jesus will be victorious. He will be victorious. And he will come and he will bring judgment. And in that judgment, he will make all things new. All things new. So our confidence should never be in ourselves. But our faith would grow that it would be in Christ alone. Even in those moments when the world seems so oppressive and we just feel like tapping out. Let me go. Be strong. Be courageous. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, it's really easy for us to to look at all the sin that goes around us in this world and to think that somehow we're losing traction. But Lord, everything is just birth pains. It is a reminder that things are not the way they're supposed to be and that new life is coming. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us confidence, not in believing that we can somehow do something about it, but that the Lord Jesus is coming to do something about it and that our faith would be in him alone. Lord, allow us to, to, to look and examine our lives with the sobriety of asking ourselves, yeah, there is a temptation to give up. There's a temptation to, to not hold and cling and grasp the truths of the gospel. There is a, a temptation to, to give ourselves over to the sensuality of this world. But Lord, you know, because you redeemed us, that we are better than that. Allow us, Lord, to once again be reignited to live for your glory, to live in hopeful expectation that our King is coming and that when he arrives, he will find his servants ready, doing the work that needed to happen to be prepared for our King coming. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.